Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. We have the privilege every Sunday morning, as you know, of coming to God's Word with fresh expectation, hopeful that God will fulfill His promises, that He will transform us according to His Word, that He will illuminate His glory to us. So we want to read always with that expectation. There's something electric about coming to God's Word with faith, eager to encounter Him. So let's begin reading Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May the Lord bless the preaching and the believing of His Word. Well, I, I got uh, into the gas station this morning and was not surprised, but was, I'm sure as you are, freshly perplexed to find four sixty nine was the price for a single gallon of gasoline. Very troubling since my car takes more than one gallon. Um, and I was trying to calculate in my head. My daughter asked me, well, what did the price used to be? And it was just painful to think about what the price used to be. Uh, that's a relatively trivial trouble when we think about even greater issues like shootings and massive political antagonism and the various promotions of ungodly sexual lifestyle that are taking place in our own city. And a headline I read this week about a nation with extremely aggressive tendencies getting closer and closer to a nuclear weapon and another nation with also extreme tendencies getting new kinds of nuclear weapons. There are a number of things to look at and be troubled by in our world. Things trivial, inconvenient, maybe even difficult and painful, and things sinful, and things fearful. Many things <laughs> to be troubled by. What, what hope is a Christian meant to have? What is our thought in the face of those things? 
in the face of troubling things, troubling challenges, life to go up and down. And that's not to mention a number of our own personal troubles that we might have. We have marriages sometimes that are troubled and children at times that are troubled. I was just talking to someone this morning who has a child facing extremely difficult mental and spiritual challenges, very troubled. There are troubling things that happen in our personal lives, in our country, in our world. Where are we to go? Well, I I think this passage is one of those passages that holds out for us where a Christian ought to go for hope in the face of troubled times. It, It upholds, Jesus in this passage, upholds hope for the Christian. When you pull into the gas station and your mind goes all kinds of places and you read the headline about 40-year inflation and the headline about rogue nations and so forth, where, where is your mind supposed to go? There's a lot of places it can go. There's a lot of things we can say. We can seek to deny it. We can seek to ignore it. We can seek to think, well, we, we're, we're well prepared enough that that would never happen to us. I remember a conversation I had years ago with, with a group of they were like high school seniors and juniors, and we were just chatting and talking, and there had been a, a headline at that point about some nation that was declaring, we intend to bomb the United States and so forth. And I was interested in what they would think, so I just asked them directly, what do, you, what do you think about that headline that's been in the news recently? And one response from one of the young men has stuck with me to this day. He said, well, they could never touch us. They could never touch us. Well, that's, that's one answer. I don't think it's very accurate. I think it's based on an optimism rather than a reality, I think, perhaps. But we do that all the time. We can sometimes sort of hope, well, I I just sort of hope providentially it'll work out that before I die I'll have had a a relatively comfortable life. Hopefully the the troubles will be minimized and the blessings maximized and and we'll just kind of make it to the end without too much trouble. That's one way of thinking about life. We can think our preparation is so impressive, so well thought through that even if there were troubles, they would never come to us. We, we've, we've laid sufficient groundwork that nothing actually could happen to us. Or we can seek escapism. Look, I know there's going to be troubles, but the point is to have as much fun as you can and to get your mind involved with as much pleasure as you can, and then you don't have to think about all the troubles that might come. Look, there's, there's a lot of ways Christians can go. I think this passage holds out hope for where we should go. It holds out where we ought to be thinking about what we ought to be focused on. This passage begins yet again with another group of religious leaders coming to Jesus, seeking to challenge Him. The Pharisees and scribes failed previously to overcome Jesus in the passage last week. Well, now it's the Sadducees, another group. If you think political parties, you'd be somewhat close. This has religious overtones to it as well. But the Sadducees come a group of the ruling elite in Jerusalem, and they come with their own question. They're looking to do the same thing to Jesus that the Pharisees were. They're looking to put him into something of a no-win situation. So they come to him with this somewhat ridiculous scenario. We are reminded as readers of Mark, who didn't live in Jerusalem in the first century, that the Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection. So for them, this life is all that there is. Now, they are also threatened by Jesus' popularity... And they don't want him to continue to gain momentum with the people. And so they thought, well, let's, let's bring this theological puzzle to Jesus. And that will present something of a, a trap for him. We'll explain what that trap would be in a moment. So they present a somewhat absurd scenario. They say, teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, so far, so good. Jesus would be well aware of the, uh, the, the law of the Old Testament that if a, if a man die leaving no children for the sake of preserving the heritage and the line, the man's brother would marry that wife and their first son would carry on the name of the dead older brother. That was the idea. Well-known law, well-established in Israel. That's the way they did it because they wanted to preserve the lineage of, of certain lines in the family. So if you're a brother, you might think that's really weird that you would have that responsibility. You're single and like, I, I don't like her very much. But that wasn't the point in Israel. Your job was to raise up offspring for your brother and you would marry her and so on and so forth. Well-known law. Jesus is saying so far, yep, I got you guys. I understand that. Law, I totally understand it. Now it goes into the absurd. There were seven brothers. <laughs> I mean, you have to appreciate Jesus' patience with people like this. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. Okay? Well, then a second took her and died, leaving no offspring. But we really want to make this trap seem really ridiculous, Jesus. So we're going to keep going. There were seven of these guys. None of them have children. And this poor woman <laughs> finally dies having also had no children. I mean, the absurdity of it is, is transparent. But what they get to is a lower-the-boom kind of conclusion where they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? You, you can feel the kind of smug, self-righteous cynicism. Now, they come up, and for the sake of the question, they are assuming resurrection. This is one of those arguments where you say, let's assume that you're right. Can I point out how ridiculous your belief is? That's what's really going on here. Jesus knows that's what's going on here. They're saying, okay, in the resurrection that you believe in, this poor woman who's had to marry seven of these guys, she rises again. Which one of them is going to be married to her in heaven? The obvious assumption of their answer is, that's ridiculous. Nobody could be married to seven husbands under the will of God, and none of them have a greater claim on her than any other, so it creates an impossible scenario. The only conclusion, they would say, is there can't be a resurrection. God would surely not put this woman and these men in that kind of ridiculous, unsolvable scenario. Therefore, the only conclusion to reach is the idea of heaven, since we know God told the woman to be married to subsequent husbands, we know that to be true. Therefore, resurrection is an impossibility. It's an absurdity. There'd be no way of solving that kind of lemma. This is a kind of a, a tricky theological puzzle, and they're presenting it to Jesus as a kind of trap. It can't be solved, they say. And like the Pharisees, the Herodians assume this is a no-win scenario for Jesus. If Jesus agrees with them, yeah, that's a problem. I don't know. Good point. Mrs. McGrady, I, I'm not sure which McGrady should be married to in heaven. That's a problem. If he agrees with them, then he alienates himself from the Pharisees and from majority of the people in Jerusalem who likely believe in a resurrection... 
So he would alienate himself from the Pharisees if he agrees with these guys. On the other hand, if Jesus rejects their supposedly ironclad argument, they can mock him as they do the Pharisees as a superstitious dreamer. They will solidify their Sadducean angst against the Pharisees and that whole class, and Jesus is just one of those guys who dreams about a supernatural life. They think this is a win-win scenario. Either way, we either hurt Jesus or we help ourselves. This works out great. Once again, it is their assumptions that will be exposed their cynicism that will be condemned by the Son of God. Jesus begins with a a rhetorical question that functions as a rebuke in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? (laughs) Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, that is a strong rebuke to the Sadducees, because in religious terms, the Sadducees were actually, you might even put it, more conservative religiously than the Pharisees. They only accepted literal teaching of literal sections of Scripture in the way the Pharisees were were open to other traditions and so forth. So, for Jesus to say to the Sadducees, you don't know the Scriptures, and you definitely don't know the power of God, functions as a rebuke. Jesus is not shaken by their accusation. He's not intimidated by their cynicism or their trap because, notice this, he knows the Word of God and he believes in the power of God. We'll come back to that later, but I think those are two crucial convictions to notice in the Lord Jesus here. He knows the Word of God and he believes in the power of God. Therefore, he is undismayed by mockery of God. And he goes on to answer both questions. He says, first of all, the resurrection is not just like an extension of life on earth. It's a resurrection into an entirely new life, a life closer to the life of the angels in heaven. In verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's important to note that the Sadducees did not believe in angels, so Jesus actually rebukes that that didn't even come up. And again, in their mind, the only kind of life that there is, is the life that humans live on earth right now. So the only kind of heaven they can imagine is some kind of endless extension of our current life. But no, Jesus says, humanity will not cease to be human, but they will be elevated into a kind of life closer to the angels in which marriage and intimacy and everything that goes with it are left behind for the greater glory of life in the presence of God. He's saying, you don't, you don't understand the power of God and what He's going to graduate humanity into in that resurrection life. All, all, your mind is so fixated on the assumption of this life that even when you think about the resurrection, you just assume it's an extension of this life. He says, no, that's not the case at all. Now, quick aside, because I'm happily married, as I know many of you are, and it's possible this answer might seem like sad news. <laughs> if you're happily married, if you're, if you're struggling in your marriage, maybe it doesn't. But if you're happily married, <laughs> the answer might seem like sad news, that, that there is no marriage, no intimacy in heaven. But Jesus' point here in referencing angels I think is one of the reasons we might misunderstand this passage. We tend to think of angels as sort of pleasant, happy, somewhat stern, unimpressive kinds of people. 
But for the Jewish listener, they would have seen them as these magnificent beings whose existence was above the existence of humanity, who experienced life in the presence of God, who could be near God in a way that humans could not be near God, who were above and beyond transcended our physical limitations. So for them to be like the angels was a clear elevation. It was a graduation. doesn't mean angels are better than humans, but their, their way of life, at least right now, is certainly above and beyond what we could imagine in our way of life. So he says it's going to be more like that. And, and in terms of marriage, it's important to remember that marriage ultimately is always intended to be a symbol of something greater. We read that in different parts of the Bible. Marriage is meant to be a reflection of Christ and His church. It's, it's an anticipating symbol. So the greatest joys of marriage that we have right now are the symbol of what is a greater reality of life with God in heaven. Now, I don't think this means that we won't know each other in heaven, that we won't recognize. I think we will recognize each other in heaven. I'm quite sure that my wife will be my best friend in heaven, and we will be there together worshiping the Lord. So I don't think this is going to be a a separation in any sense. But all the other joys of marriage that we rightly appreciate right now are just a shadow and a taste. C.S. Lewis would have called them part of the shadow lands. And they're meant to make us long for the reality, the greater thing to which the shadow points. So for Jesus, this isn't a sad declaration, there isn't marriage in heaven. It's saying, well, marriage is always, it's, it's meant to be anticipatory of the great wedding feast between the bride and her bridegroom, of which we will be a part and we will feast and enjoy life with him forever. We will be like the angels in heaven, enjoying the presence of God in ways that we cannot imagine or fathom right now. So he's saying, Sadducees, because all you can imagine is just a longer earthly life, you assume this is a theological dilemma. What you've left out of the equation is God can give you an entirely new type of life, more glorious than you can imagine. So your dilemma breaks down, first of all, at that point. You assume that God will just keep people alive. No, but he will give them a much greater life, enjoying life in the presence of God. And furthermore, he keeps going. Look down at your Bibles. Furthermore, he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how Jesus spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Upon first reading, we might think that Jesus' emphasis, look down at your Bibles if you would, is on the present tense of the verb, I am the God of. As if Jesus is saying, if God is presently the God of Abraham, then that proves the case that he is God of a living Abraham. Now, I I think that is true and an accurate theological statement, but I don't think that's the point Jesus is making. I don't think it is because in the original Greek, the present tense verb am, as in I am, isn't even present. Now, I think it's a legitimate translation because you've got to translate Greek to English, and I am is smoother in English, so it makes sense. I don't think it's inaccurate but I don't think it's the accent. It's not like Jesus is saying, you notice he says, I am. That's not the point Jesus is making. The original Greek is more like, I, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
not God of the dead, but of the living. I, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The emphasis is not on his, his presently being that, but on the nature of who he is as God, and because of that nature and his covenant with them, who they can confidently be forever. The commentator Edmund Hebert says this far better than I can. Listen to this. He says, they had drawn a wrong conclusion because they failed to understand the true nature of God in his relations to men. Jesus held that God's describing himself to Moses as Abraham's God, Jacob's God, and Isaac's God referred not merely to a past relationship which no longer existed, by his very nature. God is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. Say that again. By his very nature, God is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. In calling these patriarchs into covenant relations with himself, he had established a relationship with them that was not terminated with physical death. Death did not break the spiritual relationship into which they had been brought. The patriarchs were dead in the visible world, but they were still alive unto God in the invisible world. As the unchanging living God, He is the God of the living, of men who are characterized as having life, listen, because of their relationship with Him. So it's actually something more profound. He's not just making a a subtle grammar point here. He's actually saying, you are assuming that when God calls and claims these people, he was doing that knowing that he couldn't overcome death. Death for you reigns supreme over God's covenant. Jesus is putting the question back on them. Why do you assume death is greater than God? Why not assume the opposite? Why not assume God is greater than death? Couldn't both assumptions be made? He's putting it right back on them. He's saying, well, obviously, we all know people die, and therefore, isn't it impossible that it's going to work out that they could come back to life again with all of the troubles and so forth? He's saying, look, don't you overlook in your interpretation the very nature of God who supersedes and transcends death? Isn't God greater than death? By the nature of the fact that He called Abraham, why do you assume that He only called Abraham for as long as He lived? Why are you making that assumption? Why couldn't the God who made life call Abraham in such a way that he called him beyond death? So he concludes, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living because of the nature of who he is as God. Very profound point he's making. When God calls his people, he calls them in such a way that death cannot separate them from himself. When God called the patriarchs, He called them in such a way that nothing else had a greater claim on them than God did. God wasn't saying to them, look, we're going to have this contract, but we all know the context is I can't overcome death for you. So I'll give you a really good life, but then, you know, death kind of breaks the contract because you won't be alive anymore. No, that's not what He's saying. I'm calling you, and that's all that matters. Everything else will bow to that truth. I'm calling you, I'm laying claim on you, and since we're still reading the book of Genesis, which the Sadducees would accept, let's remember who called them to life in the first place. He's saying, look, we lay claim to the existence and nature of God in calling these people in such a way that even death 
with all of its apparent power, is not greater than the power and promise of God's covenant. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When God calls someone, He calls them in such a way that that relationship will not be broken by death. Is not this why you are wrong, he says. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. What's he saying here? Jesus is upholding God's promise of eternal life for his people. And the context in the bush makes this apparent as well. Jesus isn't randomly interpreting the Old Testament. The context of the bush passage is that God is comforting Moses, who's going to be called to rescue his people. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, it would have been short comfort, I think, for him to comfort Moses by saying, I was with Abraham briefly, and then he died. Because the Israelites were as good as dead in Egypt. The point here is that God is above and beyond those kinds of limitations. He's saying to Moses, since I am the God of Abraham, Jesus interprets that as saying, since I continue to be the God of Abraham, a a covenant that oversaw death and overruled death, in the case of Abraham, you also can be comforted as you go to rescue those people who are as good as dead in Egypt. That's apparently Jesus' meditation on the passage with the bush, probably more profound than most of us. That's the comfort that Jesus says God brought to Moses. That is the right assumption, he says, based on the overwhelming power of Yahweh. Jesus, in this passage, upholds God's promise of eternal life for his people. Now, of course, the declaration of eternal life introduces a dilemma for those who know the scriptures, because the same God who said he's the God of Abraham also said that death was the condemnation for all of Adam's children. So this passage, yet again, introduces a dilemma. Okay, but, but what do we do then with death as the wages of sin? What do we do with that? Now, this was a promise, I think, that God's people historically could receive by faith and that Jesus' disciples that day could receive by faith. But the readers of Mark, Mark's original audience, and we, reading millennia later, can see that in an even greater way, Jesus has upheld this promise. Because we recall that Jesus said in Mark 8, 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The readers of Mark have heard the rest of the story. So the, the dilemma, okay, God is going to give His people life after death, but how is that going to happen? The Old Testament people of God and the disciples that day just had to take that by faith. Abraham had to take that by faith. He had to take it by faith that God could overcome death. But the readers of Mark see more of the story. We see more of the story because we know the one who died in our place and having satisfied the judgment of God against sin, then then rose from the dead. So the readers of Mark can say, oh yes, he is absolutely a God of resurrection, and the one talking about it will secure it. The one declaring it will bring it about. 
We know that Jesus upheld God's promise of eternal life, first by paying for the cost of that life, by dying in place of his people, and then by proving God's life-giving power by rising from the dead. So we have evidence even greater than the burning bush. We have the tomb that is empty, empty because Christ paid for the penalty of sin and rose from the dead. So for God's people, when Christ says, you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God, we can say, and neither do you know the Christ who died and rose again. We have even more reason to believe what Christ is upholding. For God's people... There is eternal life after death, purchased by Christ, proved by Christ, given to God's people, as the place our hope should be in this troubling world. As the place our hope should be in this troubling world. That's the glorious truth of this passage, made even more glorious by what Jesus is going to do in just a few chapters, dying for sinners and rising again. It's the truth Mark holds out at the end of this gospel. Do you believe in the power of Jesus' resurrection, or will you doubt and believe that death and this life is the end? Christ upholds God's promise of eternal life for those who believe in him. Now, what does it mean for us to believe it? What does it mean for us to turn our hope in that direction? What does that mean? This, this is an application of this passage. I, I want to give two categories of application. First, it means that we must not be intimidated by cynical, earthly mockery today. It means we must not be intimidated by cynical, earthly mockery of the Bible or Christianity or Christ or God or eternal life. We must not be intimidated by that kind of mockery today. Sometimes when I'm thinking about passages like this, I'll go in my mind to those scenes that many of us have witnessed of a, a late-night talk show. Those late-night talk shows that basically epitomize the mockers of Psalm chapter 1. The idea that any kind of faith or belief is absurd. It's easily mockable. Well, I think we can learn from Jesus' promise here and from Jesus' example. It's mockable if you assume it's not true. Anything's mockable if you assume it's not true. Anybody can do that. And the Sadducees illustrate it is possible to be cocky, arrogant, and wrong. It is possible to be cocky, arrogant, and wrong, to be smug, self-righteous, and wrong, to lay traps and be wrong. It's possible to be smug, arrogant, cocky, humorous, clever, and wrong. Let me give you a very practical illustration. This could actually happen with anything, but it's turned often towards Christianity. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine that a pilot decides that he wants to devote the remainder of his life to bringing life-saving medicine to those villagers who are infested with malaria in various parts of the Amazon that haven't connected to the modern world. He devotes his life to it. So he takes massive crates of this medicine. He flies down to the nearest airstrip he can find. But then obviously he has to trek for days and days and weeks to reach one of these villages that's succumbing to this disease by the tens and dozens and hundreds. He shows up and he tries to explain how he has arrived there. He says, I, I, I came in 
it, it's, it's like a house that, that flies through the air, and it's right back there over the mountain, which I know you've never gone, but it's right over the mountain, and I need your help. I can't get it here without help. Would you come with me, and we can bring this medicine? It will help all these people. And he tries, and he tries to explain, and finally the chief says, enough. And he, he picks up a, a jar, and he says, you mean it's something like this, and you're saying it flies through the air? Let's test it. And he throws the jar over the side of some ridge, and down it falls, crash at the bottom. Everybody laughs. Here's the man who has a flying house. Should we go over the mountain with him? No. We all know houses can't fly. Well, obviously, that's easily mockable if you don't understand what an airplane is, and you don't believe in engines. You can do that with anything. So don't be impressed when people make fun of Christianity or the Bible. You could do that with anything. If you start off saying, there isn't a supernatural God, and I don't really know the Bible, and I'm going to make fun of you. Listen, Christianity is not defendable giving away the idea of a supernatural God and the authoritative Word of God. And I sometimes am worried that Christians want it to be. I sometimes am worried that Christians want to debate. Okay, let's assume I can defend the reasonableness of Christianity, but we won't talk about a supernatural God and the authority of the Bible. We'll just make it seem reasonable. You can't. You cannot do. That's like trying to describe an airplane to a person who has never seen motorized air travel. You will seem ridiculous. Listen, we are not meant to be palatable to people who throw away the supernatural nature of God and the authority of God's Word. And we should not be intimidated because anything could be mockable if you don't understand it and you throw away its most important attribute, namely that there is a supernatural God who transcends the natural laws of this age and this world. There, there's a God who's above and beyond those things that what you see every day and face in your limitations in hospital awards and funeral homes is not the same limitation of that God. If you give that away, obviously Christianity is mockable. It makes no sense to come to church every week, to give your money towards Christian mission, to serve others sacrificially. None of that is reasonable unless there's a supernatural God. That's what the mockery of Christianity does. It first asks you to assume the absence of a God and then wants you to defend your convictions. You can't. You can't. And listen, if our lives make sense to a person who doesn't believe in a supernatural God in eternity, the problem is with our life. Our lives should not make sense to a person who doesn't believe in a supernatural God. If your life makes sense to a person who doesn't believe in heaven, there's something wrong with your life. You maybe perhaps are intimidated by the mockery of those who've already decided, I don't believe in engines and I don't believe in air travel and I don't understand what you're talking about when you talk about an airplane or why you're even here. Do not be intimidated by people who are cynical, self-righteous, and wrong. 
I worry at times that atheists and agnostics in the functionally atheistic and agnostic age we live in is bold and wrong, and Christians are timid and right. Cocky, arrogant, self-confident, but wrong. And the Christians are apologetic, defensive, and right. We must not be. There's something we can benefit from Jesus' example here that he holds out for us. Is this not why you're wrong? Now, let me just try to, try to imagine the scenario where you were, in, for some reason, invited to one of those talk shows, national audience, and all of the sarcastic humor that plays in that and in all of social media. Couldn't we say on the basis of our belief in Jesus, isn't this why you're wrong? You don't know the Bible, you don't believe in a supernatural God? How does that play in the audience? Oh no, this is why you're wrong. This is why you're wrong on all kinds of things. You don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. This is why you're wrong. This is why you're wrong living only for this life. This is why you're wrong assuming that the best thing you can do is to have the best life you can right here on this earth. This is why you're wrong to make fun of people who live by faith. This is why you're wrong to denounce Christians who live by the word of God and not by the dictates of the culture. This is why you're wrong. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the power of God. I love to tell you about them, but I'm not intimidated by you. You're something like that ignorant chief who laughs at the idea of an airplane and medicine from another part of the world, but you're actually wrong. We should not be intimidated. Should not be. On social media, in the way we live our life, in the concern about the opinions of our neighbor, in trying to minimize offensive biblical positions. Listen, the Christian that is not offensive to the world at the point of conviction clearly based on God's word is letting the opinion of the world be more important to them than the opinion of God. We should not, we must not be intimidated by cynical earthly mockery today. Listen, we live in an era of functionally agnostic cynics. That's the era we live in. I don't know if there's God out there, but it's ridiculous to claim that everybody should believe in one. I don't know who you think you are to say that there's a right and a wrong way to do your life. Who are you to say that a person can't believe whatever they want about themselves and love whoever they want and do whatever they want. Who, who are you to say that? I, boy, I, I don't mean to be offensive. I, I, don't, I don't want to be, I'm not better than you. If that's the basic response of the Christian, I, I, I don't want to offend you. I, don't, I, don't want to avoid, I, I want to be friends with you. I think Jesus' answer is instructive for us. Isn't this why you're wrong? Because you don't know the word of God and the power of God? Can I tell you about that? We can be humble and right. We don't have to be timid and right because so many are arrogant and wrong. Second category of application, it means we should positively build our lives for eternity. 
shouldn't be intimidated by the cynical mockery of the culture we live in, and we should build our lives for eternity. Listen, the Son of God is saying, on the basis of God's own nature, and as we know, on the basis of His own death and resurrection, that those who trust in God will live forever in a glorified state, somewhat like the glory of supernatural angels. Now, that, that ought to shape our perspective day in and day out. That ought to wake us up in the morning. Because in the Bible, eternal life perspective doesn't render this life meaningless. It renders this life a glorious preparation. It doesn't render it irrelevant. It gives it its greatest relevance. It's actually the people who live for this life alone that render this life irrelevant. You're going to die anyway. What does it matter? But the person who are living for eternity, no, they will face the God that is watching their life and has claimed it for himself. And they want to invest this life in that God, knowing that in that day they will face him and they will look back over their life before him and he will assess how their life was lived for him. That's a person that has real relevance in this life. It should shape our perspective about the pains of this life because they will end in physical death and our God will bring us into an undying land forever. Our pains are temporary. What a thing to say to your pains. Temporary. And a lot of times God heals them before we die. Praise the Lord. But even if he doesn't sometimes and they linger, they are temporary. Temporary. That means every pain we experience is an opportunity to remember heaven. Every headache, every backache, every twinge of the ankle, every cold, <laughs> every time you get to go to a checkup at the hospital, temporary, temporary. No hospitals in heaven. No doctors in heaven. None. Zero. No pains in heaven. Eternal life like the angels, undying, invulnerable. There we are. It tells us our pains are temporary. Our senses of mental weakness and vulnerability, temporary. In some ways, the vulnerabilities of this life are meant to drive us towards our hope that is provided for us in this passage. We can learn from the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Living forever doesn't make their lives and their failures seem irrelevant, but rather eternally significant. Since our life is short and eternity is forever, we should want to live by faith and not by sight. We should want to serve and not surrender to our temporary, selfish urges. So, for example... If we are tempted by impatience and exasperation in our marriage, in all seriousness, if we are tempted by difficulties in our marriage, let's remember our marriage is temporary. It is a temporary sign of the greater marriage to come. Reason to be a good symbol right now. God has not asked his people to endure endlessly, temporarily to serve, temporarily to give. If we are burdened by the sacrifice of raising children, 
Listen, it's the shortest of seasons in which we can train and influence an eternal soul. The shortest of seasons. I mean, how easy to think at that evening moment, I am tired and this child is exasperating. But it's the shortest of seasons to invest in an eternal soul. It's the briefest of seasons. Now, if we're like the Sadducees and we're fixated on this life, then we better gobble it up because it's quickly running away from us. We're like, we're like Scrooge hoarding and, look, I, I need this time. I need this day because I only have so many of these. So look, stop. Go away from me. I, I need time for me. I only have so many this time, and I, I, I have to survive, so I guess I have to work. But, but I, need, I need some me time. Why? Because it's acting like this life is a treasure that just gets thrown away one minute at a time. And everyone knows sooner or later the coins run out and you die. So a Sadducean perspective is, oh, you got to hold on, you got to hold on, hold on, hold on, have, have fun, you got to make, make sure, get the most out of it, get the most out of it, run, 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 do more, do more, enjoy more, enjoy more, don't let anybody get in the way of enjoying you. Because you've got a big treasure box called life and a hole in the bottom, and the coins are just drilled at one morning, night, difficult conversation at a time, so you just want to say, no, get out of here, I need to hold on to this. But the eternal perspective says, I'm, these are all, here you go, Lord, because my treasure is in heaven, and it can't be defiled or spoiled or fade. Hey, well, you want a coin? Here's a coin. Here's a coin. Here's a coin. And you know what? God's marking all of the coins we give away. That's, that's the difference. The Sadducees say, you got to hold on. Hold on to things because they're, they're leaving you. Make the most of them. The eternal perspective says, hey, Lord, here you go, and other people, and let me invest in you, and here's giving, and here's sacrifice, and yeah, I, I don't need to build a life that's great for myself right now. I, I have a life in heaven that is coming. This life perspective that's driven by accumulating and holding on to the treasures of this life, that's what Jesus has already said. You're going to lose it anyway, but there is a life to come that will not be taken from you. That's what Jesus holds out hope to the Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection. We must not be like them. We must not be like them. Are we viewing our giving and our serving in light of eternity, remembering that our treasure in this, in this age will decay and cannot be carried with us, but they can be invested in the kingdom of God who promises eternal life to those who trust him? Are you like me and you're more aware of your schedule and your reputation than the eternal needs of your neighbor or your brother or your coworker who needs to know the promise and our offer of God for eternal life? Is my fatigue on the weekend more important than gathering with God's people as the greatest symbolic representation of what heaven will be like? The Son of God rejected the idea that this life is all that there is, and He knows what He is talking about, and He died to claim that promise for us. The Sadducees, with their focus on this age, were wrong. They did not know the Scriptures or the power of God, and God has claimed us for eternal life. And this age is just the prelude and the preparation for that moment. Let us believe 
in Christ's promise, hold out in this passage, and ultimately in Christ as the one who secures and proves it for us, let us place our hope fully in Christ so that when we see the inconveniences and the troubles and the trials and the catastrophes of this world, let us be heavenly-minded. Let us declare to those trials and troubles and sacrifices and pains, yes, but I do know the Scriptures and the power of God, that power that will claim His people for an undying existence in His presence forever. And yes, it's hard to be in a temporarily broken world in which the best we can do is to be salt and light against the decay. But we are going to a world where there is no need for sun and there is no need for hospitals. And therefore, I can be patient and wait with my eyes on the one who has promised to get us there and has paid for the dilemma of sin and rose again as proof that eternal life is for all those whom God has claimed. That's where our hope ought to go. When we face the difficulties of this life, We ought to look like resurrection Christians, fixated on the one who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Lord, please answer that prayer. Make us resurrection Christians. Lord, for those that don't know you as Savior, Lord, turn them from their sin and their fixation on this world to cast all that they are on you. For those of us that do know you, Lord, but are somewhat intimidated and drawn to the pleasures and the mockery of this world, Lord, I pray you would remind us of your power and your promise, and we would be resurrection-shaped, eternity-shaped, Give us that kind of joy and confidence and boldness and sacrifice that looks to you. You are our hope in life and in death and forever. Amen.